Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 319. It's titled, Here Comes Central Bank Digital Currencies. I recently thought I hadn't received payment from a sponsor to the show. I reached out to them because I didn't have payment in my checking account. It turns out they had mailed me a check. The check was sent to a P.O. box I have in Phoenix. I'm in Idaho. I won't be able to pick up this check for weeks. And then when I cash it, it'll take a number of days to clear to actually get the funds. Now, the sponsor could have wired me the funds or used ACH, but there there would have been a delay of several hours to a day. They could have paid me in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency. But given the volatility of Bitcoin, the amount received could be less than the amount sent after I convert the Bitcoin payment into dollars. And of course, they could have just mailed cash. But then, what if it got lost in the mail? Suppose instead that this sponsor and I both had a savings account at the Federal Reserve using a digital token issued by the Federal Reserve. The transfer could have been sent and received instantaneously. The transaction would have been verified and added to the central bank's ledger of transactions in the central bank's digital currency. Unlike a wire transfer, which can cost up to $25, the transaction would have cost little, if anything. A recent survey by the Bank for International Settlements, the BIS, indicated that 80% of central banks are engaged in some type of work related to issuing a central bank digital currency, or CBDC for short. 40% of central banks have progressed from conceptual research to experiments or proof of concepts. Another 10% have developed pilot projects. And 10% of central banks say they are likely to issue a general purpose CBDC in the short term and 20% in the medium term. Just this month, six major central banks, including the U.S. Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, and the Bank of Japan issued a joint report titled Central Bank Digital Currencies, Foundational Principles and Core Features. Central banks are thinking about this. They're working on it. So in this episode, we are going to take a closer look at central bank digital currencies, their use case, their risks, and why it appears increasingly likely that we will see major central banks, including the Federal Reserve, issue digital currencies in the coming years. Central banks already issue two types of money, and they provide infrastructure to support a third type of money. Central banks issue physical cash, notes, and bills. They are widely accessible. You can do peer-to-peer -peer payments anonymously with cash. A dollar is a Federal Reserve note. 
It is a non-interest-bearing liability issued by the U.S. Central Bank. That's one type of central bank currency. Other central banks also issue physical cash. The second type of money that central banks issue are reserves. These are electronic deposit accounts held at the central bank by qualified financial institutions. Commercial banks have accounts at the central bank. Those accounts are denominated in central bank-created money, reserves. Central banks also facilitate a third type of money. This is private money, electronic commercial bank deposits, your bank checking and savings account deposits. This private money is created by commercial banks when they make new loans. The central banks play a role in this because they allow for interbank payment settlement. When I cash this check from the sponsor, my bank will interact with the Federal Reserve to draw the funds from the bank that the sponsor has a checking account. Central banks then allow for this interbank payment settlement. Central banks also allow for the conversion of private bank money to central bank money. When a commercial bank sees demand by its customers for physical cash, it can go to the central bank and convert some of its private money into central bank money and receive those dollar bills. The Group of 30, this is an international body of leading financiers and academics, issued a white paper this year on central bank digital currency. They point out that currently we have a two-tier system. The public has digital accounts with commercial banks and they can make payments with those digital accounts by writing checks or they can withdraw physical cash. And then commercial banks have accounts with the central bank. And when we make a payment, there's a front end, the payment's initiated, and then there's the back end, the payment is cleared as commercial banks interact with the central bank. Central banks also provide a backstop for commercial banks in their role as lender of last resort. The central banks provide liquidity and other programs to foster stability and confidence in commercial banks so we don't have bank runs and individuals want to pull all their money out of the bank. Now, all the transactions that occur in the U.S. with regards to this interaction with the banking system with the central bank, it's done in the U.S.'s fiat currency, the dollar. It serves as a unit of account. When you look at your bank statement, it's quoted in dollars. The dollar is a medium of exchange. When we do most of our transactions, they're denominated in dollars. And the dollar is a store of value, at least in the short term. It doesn't fluctuate significantly from day to day. Over time, it loses its purchasing power due to inflation, but it certainly is a lot less volatile than some of the cryptocurrencies out there. So then the two types of central bank money physical cash, and reserves. And these are liabilities of the central bank. Commercial bank deposits are not liabilities of the central bank. They are private money. But the central bank does all it can to ensure that we have trust in that private money. A central bank digital currency, then, would be a third type of central bank money. It would offer cash-like safety and the convenience of making peer-to-peer payments but much more quickly. We could have a deposit account at the central bank, such as the Federal Reserve, 
We might even be able to earn interest with our savings account at the central bank. This central bank digital currency could be account-based, based on our identity, so the payments are transferred from one account to another. Or it could be token-based, similar to cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. Bitcoin uses a cryptographic scheme with public and private keys. If you have a cryptocurrency app on your phone, there's a Bitcoin address, a public key, and a private key that are all mathematically related. The public key and the Bitcoin address are both derived from the private key, and the private key should never be disclosed. It would take a supercomputer trillions of years to mathematically determine what the private key is. You can send Bitcoin to a Bitcoin address, and you can receive Bitcoin to your Bitcoin address. And the public key is used to make sure the owner of that Bitcoin address can receive funds. Bitcoin is what is known as a permissionless network. So there's no centralized clearing authority. It's a distributed ledger. So if I send Bitcoin to someone, that transaction is validated by miners around the world that are verifying transactions. And when there's agreement, it's added to the distributed ledger. It allows for anonymity. That would be different from a central bank digital token. That would be a permissioned system, similar to what the Facebook Libra was going to be, where there are certain entities responsible for verifying transactions. So it would be select intermediaries that the central bank chooses. It would still be a digital token if that's the route that a central bank takes. Now, the type of central bank digital currencies that we've talked about are general use, where individuals could get an account at the Federal Reserve. It's possible some central banks will just want to do a wholesale central bank digital currency that's just restricted to perhaps other commercial banks to allow for interbank payments or security settlements. For our case, we're more interested in this general use central bank digital currency where we can get access to this third type of central bank money. Now, central banks wouldn't act entirely on their own. This joint report by the six central banks wrote, a general purpose CBDC would require an underlying system to provide and distribute the digital currency conveniently to the public. This system would comprise the central banks, operators, participating payment service providers and banks. Be an entire ecosystem to allow this central bank digital currency to exist. But the key characteristic is that this currency would be a claim on the central bank. Right now, our checking deposit is a claim on private money of the commercial bank where your account is held. Now, there's deposit insurance to protect if the bank goes under, but it's very different than having access to the central bank, which can create unlimited amount of money and to have a deposit there. What is motivating central banks to consider central bank digital currencies? This joint report by the six central banks pointed out a number of them. First is continued access to central bank money. There's some areas around the world where there's less money available. There's less use of cash by citizens. They prefer electronic payments using private money. Some central banks consider it one of their obligations to make sure that households and businesses have access to central bank money. 
And as we pointed out, the only central bank money that households and businesses have access to is cash. And so if there's less cash circulating, a digital currency would allow another way that households and businesses could have this safe asset of central bank currency. For example, in Sweden, cash payments make up only 13% of transactions. A second motivation is resilience. Cash is an effective payment backup system to electronic methods. But if there's less cash, then a central bank digital currency could be another backup system. A third reason is increased payment diversity. Another system involving the central bank versus the payment system being entirely in private hands, particularly as big tech gets more and more into payment systems such as Apple Pay and other examples. Central bank digital currencies could also encourage financial inclusion, particularly in emerging markets where a lot of individuals don't have bank accounts. Having a central bank digital currency and and individuals having on their phone this safe digital asset issued by the central bank would potentially allow for more financial inclusion. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Central bank digital currencies could improve cross-border payments. A recent survey by the BIS found that in a sample of 112 countries, the average cost to send $200 across the border in remittances was about 10%. That's extremely high. When you send money overseas, it's complex. There are numerous players. There's time zones. There's regulations, restrictions. I had a company named Paxful. This is a peer-to-peer cryptocurrency network that approached me about sponsoring the show. And I I just decided not to just because in some ways it was just too complicated to explain. 
because a big portion of their business was gift cards. People purchasing gift cards with cryptocurrency. There was an article on Medium by Matt Alberg, and he explained how individuals were using gift cards to send remittances, that these gift cards are bought on the street, like an Amazon gift card, on average about 60 cents on the dollar, with the, the code used to redeem them. Somehow in this complex transaction, the picture of the gift card and the redemption code is sent overseas to the person that's trying to get money overseas, let's say a family member. But it's very, very complicated. And the reason why they use gift cards is because at the end of the day, despite its complexity, it's cheaper than trying to do it through a traditional means of sending remittances, particularly if the country has a lot of capital controls, there's a black market, things of that sort. So having a central bank digital currency could allow for cheaper remittances. Now, that might mean that individuals overseas have an account with that central bank digital currency. Or maybe there's some coordination among central banks to where there's some type of worldwide digital currencies. But ultimately, the idea of this digital currency is to make it cheaper to send money, ease of use, but also, as we pointed out, safety. People trust that digital currency. A sixth motivation for central bank digital currency is to facilitate fiscal transfers. The stimulus money used to help combat the economic downturn related to the COVID-19 pandemic. The potential ability for governments to quickly transfer funds to the public and businesses if there's a crisis. This would be a, an effective way to do that. A seventh reason to help central banks conduct their monetary policy as they try to make sure inflation stays in check and unemployment remains low. They could do that by paying interest and adjusting interest rates on these digital accounts that individuals have, just like the central bank adjusts the interest that they pay on reserves that commercial banks hold at the central bank. The central bank could also conduct some type of fiscal policy in conjunction with the government. This fiscal policy, helicopter drops is what it's sometimes called, is creation of money sent to households and businesses, perhaps specific households and businesses that meet certain criteria, this would be a much more effective way to do that. Think about the stimulus checks in the U.S., where it took weeks and weeks for some individuals to receive those funds. Those that had a commercial bank account, it was very simple if they had direct deposit, but this would be even simpler. And a final reason is that having central bank digital currencies could facilitate more transactions. If you're in a situation where somebody can only take cash or they don't really trust other payment methods or they don't want to pay Visa or MasterCard 2 to 3%, but if you could do an instantaneous transfer with central bank digital currency to pay for something at a much, much lower cost, then there could be more transactions. That could lead to more commerce and eventually more output and faster growth of the economy. Now, clearly, there's some risk of central bank digital currencies. And the first is security. If there's a central bank digital currency, it needs to be secure. And if it's a digital token, one of the risks of digital tokens, such as Bitcoin, is if the individual loses the private key or somebody else finds the private key and they're able to steal all the currency. 
or this system itself gets attacked and there's vulnerabilities. And that could take time to figure out a way to make it secure and so that individuals and businesses feel like it's secure. A second risk is there could be runs to the central banks. If you can get an account at the central bank and you feel like it's safer than a commercial bank and there's some type of economic crisis, money could flow to the central bank and lead to bank runs for the commercial banking sector. There was one study that I saw where they modeled out if central banks paid interest on the central bank digital currency, that that would make the cost of funding for banks higher. They would have to pay more in deposits because the commercial banks would be seen as more risky compared to central bank digital currency. A fourth risk is loss of anonymity. There's anonymity paying with cash. I had one listener write me about the digital currency that China's central bank is considering. And in their system, it clearly is not anonymous, but it's partially anonymous, whereas it looks like only the government or the central bank will know who's conducting transactions. And by doing so, they could potentially approve some illicit transactions, questionable geopolitical deals. And they would be the only ones to know because it was all done within their central bank digital currency. A fifth risk is inflation. Central banks have the power to create an unlimited amount of money. Now the way they do it is they can purchase assets, such as treasury bonds, and then they create more reserves that are passed on to the commercial banks. But what if central banks could create digital money and give it to individuals and households? Or the federal government could instruct the central bank to do that. The amount of money actually flowing in the economy could be huge. This is the worry that Raul Pal, who founded Real Vision, has. I watched a video of his last week titled The Bitcoin Life Raft, The End of Monetary and Fiscal Policy as We Know It. And his concern is, well, yeah, the these central bank digital currencies will make it easier to make peer-to-peer payments instantaneously. There's safety, but it's this ability to create an unlimited amount and use it for monetary and physical policies, he believes is a real risk. It's why he believes Bitcoin will be a true store of value because there's a limited amount of Bitcoin being created. He believed the scarcity of Bitcoin could lead to significant price increases because of the inflation risk of central bank digital currencies. Central banks, as they consider developing these digital currencies, have some founding principles. The first principle is not to compromise monetary or financial stability by issuing the central bank digital currency. Do no harm, they wrote. So they're very cautious as they consider introducing it that it doesn't lead to unintended consequences, including inflation. I mean, the central bank's responsibility is to maintain the value of the currency so that we don't have rampant inflation. It's a risk, but they want to make sure they do it in a way that they don't cause that. They want the digital currency to coexist and complement existing forms of money. So it's not a huge competition to private bank money so that there's not a run to put money with the central bank and not use private banks anymore. A third principle is they want to promote innovation and efficiency. They would rather not be the dominant player. 
they are concerned about impacting other private payment methods. And this is what's so challenging about it because central banks are huge and they do have the ability to create unlimited amounts of money and they have advantages compared to the private sector and they don't want to stifle innovation and competition and efficiency. Now, one of the things is many central banks don't yet have authority to issue central bank digital currencies. This survey by the BIS found that about a third of central banks believe that they don't have authority to issue a digital currency. 40% aren't sure. So only about 30% are positive or confident they actually have authority to do this. So there would need to be some potential regulatory changes to allow it. And that's to be expected because most mandates that central banks have came about prior to digital currencies. I fully anticipate in the coming years that central banks will issue digital currencies because it has so many more advantages. And that's why cryptocurrency is still around. And there's more talk of stable coins, digital tokens that are backed by a basket of currencies, which also could come about. Stable coins backed by the world's central banks. We don't know. Many central banks feel like there would be more flexibility if they had their own digital currency. But if that became extremely popular, say the Federal Reserve digital currency became extremely popular, and so people overseas wanted access to it, it could make it more difficult for the Federal Reserve to conduct monetary policy, just like it's somewhat challenging now because there are so many dollars held overseas and so much lending in dollars that's done overseas. But ultimately, I believe digital currencies issued by central banks is bullish for private digital currencies that already exist. Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others because of their scarcity aspect, and they're just going to be more accepted. Now, the central banks in their survey found that most people aren't using digital currencies to make payments. They're not using Bitcoin or Ethereum for that. They're using it as a store of value is how it's being used. There is an opportunity for central banks to create that payment method, that stable and safe payment method, that ease of use, so that it's not so expensive to send money to others. That will certainly lead to competition with the private sector. And these competitive issues need to be managed. And the risk that we talked about, particularly the risk of inflation. Inflation comes because there's too much money created, but there's also a behavioral aspect to it. If people believe there's going to be too much money created, then they change their behavior. They start to hoard. They start to expect prices to rise and expect higher compensation for their services. And so it isn't just the money creation aspect to it. It's the belief aspect to it, the anchoring of inflation. And if central bank digital currencies unhinges that anchoring effect, then we could actually see inflation, which is why I think that all investors should have assets that protect against inflation. Perhaps some I bonds if you're in the U.S., inflation index bonds, gold, real estate, and have some monetary diversity, including gold, and cryptocurrencies. It'll be interesting to see how this develops in the coming years, but I do believe central bank digital currencies are coming. That's episode 319. 
Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing to become a better investor, I have two ways that I can help you with that. First, you could subscribe to my free email newsletter. It's called The Insider's Guide. It's where I'll share the links and articles that I mentioned in the podcast episode, as well as an essay on money, investing in the economy, and other valuable content. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. The second way that you can become a better investor, get more serious about your investing, is to become a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. With Plus membership, you get access to professional-grade portfolio tools, training, and a community to help you stay on track. Tune out the noise and grow your wealth with confidence. With your growing net worth, isn't it time to invest like a professional? With a focus on global multi-asset class portfolios, reasonable expected return and risk assumptions, achieving a real net of inflation growth, strategic adjustments as markets and economies evolve, and controlling fees and taxes. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is for those who choose to manage their own investments. It provides tools and training to manage an institutional quality investment portfolio. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.